Telecast, the TV industry news review. It's Telecast's first birthday, and to celebrate, we welcome a real-life Spice Girl on the show and reveal the results of our very own survey with more great guests to discuss the results. Hi, I'm Justin Crosby, and welcome to this week's Telecast. Blowing out our first birthday candle this week, our Spice Girl Mel B., Creative Director at Edinburgh TV Festival, Stuart Clark. Patricia Arasi, Commercial Director for TBI and Digital TV Europe at Informa. And Jonathan Broughton, MD at Workshare Consulting. It's all coming up. My first guests on this week's anniversary telecast are Patricia Arasi, Commercial Director for TBI and Digital TV Europe at Informa. Stuart Clark, Creative Director at Edinburgh TV Festival. And Jonathan Broughton, MD at Workshare Consulting. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hello, hello. Hi. Lovely to be here. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. All of that stuff that's gone under the bridge a whole year. We've been around the sun. A lot of it we can put in the bin, can't we? But there's also, hopefully, a lot we can talk about that's relatively positive that will kind of help us in our onward journey. Patricia, starting with you. How are things with you? How are things at uh, Digital TV Europe and TVI? Hi, Justine. Thanks for having me. Things are good. We have been very busy. We essentially, you know, propose a lot of digital campaigns for, for the industry, our community. So it's been, uh, yeah, it's been busy for us. Good to good to hear it. You run, obviously, a publishing and events business. We won't go into all the challenges that everybody's had because everybody's been in the same boat over the last year. But how are things looking for you right now? Can you see sun on the horizon? We can, but I think we're still going to have to wait um, a few more months. Um, I mean, Informa, we're part of Informa, uh, the two publications, and Informa is an events business. So uh, we had to... uh, really changed the ways of working quite a lot over the last few months, as you can imagine. But there's been lots of successes with uh, pivoting to virtual, but there's obviously been a huge loss of revenues as well. So uh, I think everyone is looking forward to the return uh, of physical events. We can't wait. Stuart, as, as I just mentioned, exactly one year ago, you were sat at the other end of the podcast mic, How's your year been at Edinburgh TV Festival, which is obviously a physical event, which you've turned virtual? And I know we've talked about the challenges that you were facing back then. You fundamentally changed quite a few things, didn't you, in the last year on the on the festival? Yeah. Hi, Justin. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm just I'm a lot more beardy and I've got big hair since I was on last year. Which you know, it's, it's a look I might, I might, I might grow to love. Uh, yeah, in terms of the festival, yeah, it was it was quite quite a journey. Because obviously, I, I joined thinking you know we were planning sort of an Edinburgh in Edinburgh, and we had to to change up everything very quickly. And it was seat of the pants. And I think with you know without sort of being self-aggrandizing on, on behalf of the whole team here, I think I think we pulled it off. We did fifty hours of of content had to amazing speakers david oshoga doing fantastic mctaggart a real conversation starter i think um and lots of good stuff and i guess the challenge now is working out you know if that was very much kind of adapting to the the needs at the time i kind of feel that already 
things have moved on in terms of what people expect, what you can do, uh, etc. So it kind of just feels like a, a whole new set of challenges, but lots of exciting stuff that you can do at the same time. Another year wiser as well as older, Stuart? Yeah, I think probably two feel like two years older, maybe more than more than a year older. De- no, definitely wiser. Yeah, in all seriousness, the, the whole TV industry, what happened is perhaps kind of an, a real acceleration in many cases of change that was already underway, and I think that absolutely applies to us here at the festival in terms of kind of skilling up getting stuff done in that sort of digital realm. Whereas we never ever want to let go of the in, in real life piece. Yeah, there was it was it was a big it was a big learning curve for sure. Yeah, and uh, I think that's something that I've found over the last year as well. Lots of people have said that they've needed to to acquire new skills, new ways of doing things, probably improving life as we go on and out of the pandemic. Jonathan, thanks to you also for coming back on the show. How are you doing? Good, good, good. Always, always lovely to be here. Raring to to go through our, uh, our our fantastic survey. <laughs> That's right. Now, we've been working together on the Telecast Workshare Content Industry Monitor, which is a survey that uh, many of our listeners will hopefully have taken. We had a fantastic feedback and, you know, some great response to a whole range of topics. Jonathan, tell us a little bit about how you've gone about building this survey and what sort of respondents did we have and what sort of results have we uh, can we expect to see so i think i think first off sort of what is it um and other than our brainchild uh, i think it's fair to say that um it's been very specifically designed to be quite a quite a broad survey so trying not to repeat a lot of the you know very, very capable surveys that, that are already existent and in fact um dealing with with sort of broad industry trends and and helping um, people within the industry uh, learn about and plan around what's going to be happening next. Um, the method, in terms of um, you know how we're how we're gathering things, it's it's been fairly simple. It's been reaching out to various contacts, trying to make sure that at, at no point we're um, oversampling certain groups, um, and of course, sort of modifying that as that comes through to the to the eventual data sets one of the clever things that we've done uh, even if i say so myself um is treating this as, as, as very much um, a sort of relational data um survey so rather than just having a series of of questions one thing we've done is we've we've set up um all of our answers in a nice visual engine and everything's connected to each other so we can subset from um one question to another why am i talking about that um it means we can do things like say you know people who are saying they're stressed around post-covid working conditions we can dig into that and try and explain a little bit around you know is it because they're working longer um is it because they're they've been given sort of extra work to do is it because their work-life balance has been disrupted that kind of thing um so it's it's quite deep it's quite wide and i'd say it's quite powerful our listeners can actually download this for free from the telecast website we're just going to cover off some of the key areas in here because we could as you <laughs> as you can probably imagine we could talk for a long time about this but uh we, we decided to focus in on four sections of the survey you know some of the key trends developments and experiences i suppose that we've all been through over the uh, over the past year the first section is the immediate impact of COVID. Jonathan, take us through what you found. 
I think you best summed this up in our in our little preamble when you said uh, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. So of course there was some, you know, a large amount of sort of negative answers to this question. But I think most uh, most crucially, we asked a few questions around support um, and response from leadership, and they were generally answered fairly positively. So most people found that they had enough support from their employers uh, during the pandemic, which is which is really good. Um, and where we looked into why they might not have felt there was enough support, most of that was was not from actual action that was taken. It was a it was identified as a lack of proactive action, which you know fairly understandable given what happened perhaps the lesson there is sort of communicating information as soon as you have it um proactively describing to your employees what's going to happen next makes them feel very comfortable in terms of dealing with what what was or what still is in, in many ways a pretty pretty nasty situation without going too too long into this um, in terms of the impacts that was was then felt in in businesses so not just in terms of support but in terms of actual outcome it was nice that only four percent have said that they are so negatively affected by this that they are having a bit of a, an existential crisis so four percent is is not great but it's you know better than it, it could have been and only uh, 2% of businesses said they felt no impact at all. So the majority of people felt, you know, sort of 30, 40% have had something fairly negative, but are not facing an existential crisis. Patricia, now it looks like the industry bosses have reacted pretty well overall to the worst of the crisis. Is that your sense of how things have developed over the last 12 months? Yes. I mean, from a personal experience in terms of where I work, Going back to what Jonathan just said, it was exactly that for us at Informa. Our, um, you know, we have a we have a really strong leader, uh, Stephen Carter, who is our group CEO, and that's exactly what he did. Um, you know, from the onset, telling us exactly, you know, what the situation was, what measures were being were being put in place, what we may have to put in place next. So the communication straight from the very top to the employees was very crucial. It was all done through video calls, so very direct, um, you know, and with Q&As at the end, so lots of opportunities for questions directly to the big boss. So I think that was very, very important for, for everyone at Inform at that point. In the swift application of the furlough scheme and the introduction on that, I mean, just imagine a, a year ago or so, we didn't know what the word furlough was. Well, I didn't anyway. Stuart, looking at recovery, nearly 80% of respondents said that they were either confident or extremely confident they would hold on to their jobs in the next six months. That, that's, you know, that's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, I think from where we were then to where we are now, I think that, you know, this survey has just been done over the last few weeks. That's a pretty positive outlook in terms of people feeling an awful lot of job security. Yeah, clearly that can only be a good thing. And I think it's really interesting looking at the survey that there are a lot of positive results. People feel, you know, this is obviously a degree of confidence. I mean, a couple a couple of things. I think that that while that that research suggests that people feel that their sort of bosses reacted well, again, that you know, very, very good to hear. I think you have to accept that certain groups you know as in freelancers there are certain kind of groups within the industry you know freelancers who effectively are you know get tv made in in many many respects who've just been 
pretty brutally hit. I think it's like impacted more heavily on on mums, on young people. You know, it's, I, I, while while that is, it's really good to kind of to look at the positive stuff and take some of the positives. I think you know the impact has been felt most keenly among sort of certain specific groups. Patricia, it also looks like a relatively balanced return to business and investment. And people are perhaps not really forecasting a a roaring 20s, you know, a huge deluge of work kicking in in the uh, last quarter of this year. But maybe something a little bit more balanced, but, you know, robust when it comes to recovery. Is that what you're getting? Because I know that you speak to other commercial representatives of lots of distribution businesses and uh, and networks they are cautiously optimistic yes i would say so i mean being very you know it's obviously very general but we're in an industry which has been fairly protected from covid you know we're in the industry of of television there's obviously been other industries which have been very, very badly hit. So we are quite lucky. There's obviously been a lot of, you know, people, unfortunately, who, who've suffered uh, a lot. But that definitely contributes to, um, you know, the industry we're in, to the, the, the positive flavour of your survey, I, I believe. And I picked up one bit of, you know, in terms of the, the, the business side, uh, which was interesting to me, it's ni- nearly 20% say that revenue already exceeds pre-COVID levels, which I thought was interesting. Mm. So um, that's very positive. Clearly, you know, I mean, obviously, we know that the distribution side of the business has done very well. You know, production started a few months back now, right? So, um Yes, I, I think, generally speaking, the industry is very positive. Obviously, there's now tons of opportunities with the SVODs for producers to pitch their shows and, and sell their shows for distributors. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm not surprised, generally speaking, that your your survey um, brought out some fairly positive results. So it's, it's really good, really good to hear. You're right about that uh, 20% figure of, of respondents that are already feeling back to pre-pandemic levels, which is really promising. And perhaps an indicator of also all of these other businesses in the industry that have actually indirectly or directly benefited from the pandemic. You know, streamers, as we know, have had a, have an amazing time. And as Stuart said earlier on, the acceleration of uh, an, an adoption of those sort of services over over the last twelve months has been remarkable. Coming on to the second section, that was all about working from home. Jonathan, what did you find here? So, working from home is is a real mixed bag. I have to say, there there were very clearly some people who actually you know really enjoy the sort of the differences you, you get. I was going to say advantages, but of course that's that's not the case for everybody, so it's not quite true. At the same time as working from home, we do have the impact of COVID, which cannot be sort of um, you know forgotten about uh, as part of this. So a lot of the the questions we're asking here, sort of about um, you know negative impacts in the last sort of twelve months, are intrinsically linked to both um, COVID and um, sort of the, the slightly different lifestyle that people now have when they're when they're working from home. I think that really depends on what part of the industry you work in, right? So if you if you you know your job demands 
strong collaboration with colleagues and face-to-face, then of course it's, it's difficult to do remotely. Um, but I was quite surprised that there was, that there seems to be a lot of people who are very keen to go back to the office, essentially. I think there's two words there that come to mind, homeschooling. Yes. <laughs> I'm lucky to not, yeah, to pass that stage, but um, I have been feeling for parents over the pandemic, for sure. I think parents, definitely. Um, and, and also, I also think that, again, there's a generational thing when, you know, young the younger people you know, who, who don't necessarily have you know home office and you know Patricia you're saying you, know, you're, you might be sitting you know on your bed with your laptop or whatever but it's kind of that's different to being in you know a shared house for example I just think that there's a difference across across age groups but I also think that TV you know we're not we're not working in factories making widgets it's a kind of it's a really you know it's a we don't sort of punch in and out and people are used to working long hours when they need to, I think. And, and, you know, maybe there's something about sort of, you know, the, the culture there. Ultimately it's a hugely collaborative people business. What we're doing is writing about TV, talking about TV, making TV, putting it out there at every, every stage along the way, it should be fun, creative, interesting, engaging, but it's always, always a people, people business. So I'm not surprised that people kind of want to be, close to to other people effectively the sense that we're getting is is people are saying that either 60 percent or 40 percent of the time so you know that blended kind of half two three days a week would be ideal do you do you expect that to be to become the norm Stuart going forward I don't know Justin but I do know that yeah for example when we're looking at what we do at a festival we're definitely going to be looking at what you know sort of the the workplace culture tv sort of that's sort a of wider cultural piece means in terms of how people work and how that has been reshaped i could probably tell you a bit more in august jonathan our third area we're looking at is working virtually what did you find here yeah this 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 was fascinating one of the one of the most striking things i think was uh what everybody agreed on which is it's actually far easier to get meetings with people uh in a, in a virtual environment 83 percent of people said it is now easier to arrange video calls than it ever was to do um, face-to-face meetings however they also agreed that they preferred the face-to-face meetings and that the virtual meetings weren't quite as good um as i said we can we can cross compare a lot of this stuff um with our with our other um survey responses and it was interesting that the people who were most keen at going to um, sort of physical events answered really strongly to these kinds of questions, whereas um, the sort of uh, the people who were more happy sort of doing doing desk work, not going to events and things, didn't necessarily see um, a problem with a, with a loss of face-to-face. In fact, very few of them identified that um, virtual event, uh, sorry, virtual meetings were, were worse um, in, in any way. Um, and they certainly didn't think they were losing productivity as a result. So there was there was a real sort of polarization of, of people who love physical things and meeting people in person. And, and that's how I like business. And then um, a subset of people who, who actually are pretty okay with with this stuff being being virtual um and and sort of felt that it was it was fine for for this to get their sort of general day-to-day work done jonathan i think one of the things that your your research has absolutely captured is the sort of challenge that anyone in sort of events faces which is you can kind of what you can do is sort of satisfy the need for 
you know, intelligence and sort of learning. And, you, you know, you can give people kind of a lot of information and they could sort of digitally see amazing speakers. It's that networking piece. It's that 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 piece that I think is that's the next next challenge. And maybe last year people accepted that 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 was hard to replicate. But as we move out of lockdown, even you know, I think that's the thing that people who are doing digital and virtual events need to really sort of crack that nut. And I'm not sure anyone's really really done that as yet. Yeah, definitely. We we saw that the results chime in exactly what you're saying. The the virtual events were fine for keeping up with you know, changes. They were very poor at, at networking, at catching up with key contacts, at, you know, seeing old friends, at gossip. Um, and interestingly, when we looked at why people go to events, and I'm sure sure you and Patricia know this um, better, better than me, but it's the it's the networking, it's the selling, it's the it's the keeping up with people that continually come as this is why I go to events in the first place. So it it did point to sort of um you know, a polarization of, of, of functions. Sure, we can do stuff virtually, but there's there's definitely something in, in physical which is very, very hard to replicate. Patricia, as Jonathan Stewart said, we're covering off events in this section. And one thing that really jumped out to me was that people that are attending events, and correct me if I'm wrong in my interpretation here, Jonathan, but only 24% attend events to buy or sell. So that's nearly three quarters of uh, attendees to regular events are attending for networking, keeping up with trends, gossip. Mm. This this was a very specific question. Um, we wanted to know the primary purpose. So what is the main reason they get there? So I'm sure they do everything else to a lesser extent, but that that's what got them to the door. You would hope so, yeah. You would hope they don't. <laughs> they also do some 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 business and not just uh, sit on a croissette with a glass of rosé although I, love I mean that's what i do <laughs> <laughs> i do love doing this myself but uh uh yes i mean absolutely i think you know the beauty of physical events is that more organic and often you know magical interaction that you can have with someone and end up doing business with them and, and that that other person becoming you know a friend even over time because you've had a a great time with them at an event, joking and laughing or after hours. And uh, I think for new business as well, that's that's probably very hard. Pitching new business maybe to a completely new customer. Again, it depends a little bit of a, you know, on the industry. But for me, what, what's been just to add to this uh, portion of the discussion we're having here, what's been interesting for me and, and my dealings with, with clients, uh, there's been a Two types, although a lot of the clients I deal with are, are very, they're very strategic and, uh, you know, they're very sophisticated with, with their marketing. So a lot of them didn't uh, have any problem pivoting to digital solutions, but was trickier for a lot of marketers out there that I deal with to plan a digital event compared to a physical event. Often buying a stand, setting up a stand, certainly I'm not saying it's easy at all, but um it's less complex in a way once you've got your stand. I mean, it's all to do with the stand design maybe and all, you know, all these aspects. But often a lot of marketers, if they're not that good, a lot of them are, of course, but they will get the stand ready for their teams and, and that will be it. With virtual events, you have to do a lot more planning ahead. You know, you have to plan your appointments. You have to uh, be very, very organized. So, um 
yeah, some people I think have been caught by surprise in terms of uh, not knowing exactly what to do with a virtual event because they've all, they've been used to just buy their stand at various shows, a lot of shows that were probably quite useless to them. Um, but that th- they had, you know, they were able to tick that box. I think you're you're absolutely right, Patricia. It's, it definitely is not easier just because it, it's virtual. It kind of there's a whole new set of challenges. So in terms of kind of people coming back to in real life stuff, what I've seen, and this is just from you know spending all day every day talking to people, I guess, is that people sort of fall into different camps. And but there's a large group of people who just cannot wait, to, and maybe it's because they're talking to me and I'm at the festival, um, but just can't wait to kind of to be back at those at those big in person things. And then there feels like there's a, and this is this is purely unscientific. Jonathan, unlike your, you know, your work, would, uh, but it feels to me there's a kind of smaller group who are like, you know, are you crazy? There's no way I'm, I'm doing that. And then there's a kind of a, a, a middle group of like, well, you know, I need to, I need to know how you're, you know, how you're making sure it's safe. But I'm kind of, I'm surprised, pleasantly surprised by the number of people who are in that first group of like, when is it coming back? You know, you know, jumping at the bit to, to be back with their colleagues, back in those, in those real spaces and that that makes me optimistic about about where we're headed well that's a social element Stuart isn't it I mean people really need to socialize again and do business of course but the social element of work is huge yeah yeah absolutely we're talking about the physical events as we know all of these physical events have had to be virtual in some form or other or or fully virtual actually for the last year or so some as we as we found through the survey more successfully than others but it's interesting to look ahead at which events our respondents were planning on attending in the next 12 months and probably unsurprisingly the event that people are most planning to attend is MIPCOM with over 51 that's over half of respondents talked about MIPCOM. Interesting, MIP TV was second after that with 47%. And Real Screen, IBC, NAPI, Edinburgh, should I say, was in, in third place, Stuarts. There's a real thirst to come together and, and really sort of chew the cud about industry issues. I'm, I'm glad I'm glad we're on the podium, Justin. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, you made the podium, exactly. That's very good. The MIPs are really to be together as one pushing us up to silver but yes never, yeah. never mind i was thinking about your events Stuart, and uh, given how things are going in the uk i would say your event is probably one of the most li- likely to happen as early as possible compared to you know there's probably a, a slightly less challenges than the, the bigger international event i know obviously edinburgh is also has also got a quite a large international piece but um, I think it's an, an event that stands its chances to be physical very, very soon. I hope so anyway. Glad to have you behind us, uh, Patricia. Thanks <laughs> for that. But the, I think there's, um, yeah, I think compared to uh, our sort of you know, compatriots who are running festivals in, in, in mainland Europe, and certainly there's it's a different, it's definitely a different set of challenges. I mean, one thing I think that, that we haven't touched upon that's interesting um, is that when you run a digital event, what you do have that you don't necessarily get with in real life is an unbelievable amount of data. You know, there's no there's no hiding in terms of you know exactly how many 
people engage with anything when people stop to, you know, you can get as, as detailed, as granular as, as you like. And, you know, you can never, you're never going to sort of put stuff together by algorithm. Um, well, I suppose otherwise I, I wouldn't have a job. It's fascinating. It's really fascinating. And some of it's kind of counterintuitive. And you could, I can see how you could kind of get quite obsessive about it. In fact, I am. I am. <laughs> That's going to be one of the key benefits, smarter event planning, smarter event programming. And when these events return, we, we were touched on that a little bit earlier in terms of safety. We found that 60% of respondents said that live events should feature testing as a requirement to gain access. Also, just nearly half respondents said that live events should be for vaccinated attendees only, You know, which is obviously a bit of a controversial privacy issue out there and, and freedom freedom issue uh, you know any event that's going to open its doors must take those you know aspects pretty seriously right and have those in place Stuart I'd, I'd also to just to just to add to that as uh, Stuart for your event the uh, the vaccination question was answered even more positively so um, 64 percent of people who said they were going to go to Edinburgh said it should be a vaccinated uh, conference only <laughs> there's a factoid for you one interesting side note is that the uh, the 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 EICC where where our festival is is primarily held is currently a vaccination hub. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm not yeah I'm not sure what I'm alluding to there, but you know more, more seriously, you know there are there are so many different elements there to consider. I mean that's really interesting, uh, Jonathan, to get your data to get your your specifics on that. But it's a very complex question with lots of sort of different different things to consider which i know is a, is a complete fudge but that's it is also true when august came comes sorry we'll um we'll have probably what the over all the over 40s vaccinated so you, all you need to do is forbid the info under 40s and we'll be sorted <laughs> so we can feel better about ourselves as well great <laughs> Yeah, that, that's sort of kind of what we what we don't want to do, to be honest, Patricia. So, Jonathan, looking at the final topic of conversation from our survey here, we're looking at leadership and equality. What were the key takeaways from that? Yeah, so I'll do I'll do general leadership first. Um, this this was interesting. We we gave people the uh, option of labelling their bosses as incompetent, and very few of them chose to do so. So just two percent identified bad bosses. Uh, very normal distribution. Um, you know, sixty four percent of people said that their bosses were were pretty good. So sixty four people saying sixty four percent of people saying they were competent. Although this was a lot lower for production companies than the rest of the industry. So just 38%. So in general, um, people saying that uh, in the production side of the business, uh, bosses are both less competent and also um, rather more positively visionaries at the same time. So um, more more polarized leadership within the sort of production subset. We asked a, a couple more questions. We asked about uh, women in leadership and whether they had a level playing field. And we did the same um, for fame. So the first first question in, the, in that category, whether women made uh, better bosses, um, most people said, you know, it, it's the same, uh, neither better nor worse. 21% said better, uh, and no one dared to answer that women made worse leaders. So very happy to report that. In terms of the fame messaging, you know, we've been talking about this a lot in media in general over the last couple of years. There's an increased 
highlight of the fact that you know especially on screen there's there's still issues and certainly behind the screen it's no different so 83 percent of people did say look there's a there's a lack of bame leadership and that's a problem and they also sort of 66 percent said that there definitely isn't a level playing field so i.e it's not just waiting for sort of uh, past problems to catch up there isn't a level playing field right now which is which is interesting so quite a strong reaction to that and quite similar um, in the the female question as well. So saying, is there a level playing field for women? Again, it's a 60-40 split, so a little bit better. But people saying that right now, 60% of people said there was an issue. I think certainly when it comes to underrepresented minorities within the UK, I think we all know there's an issue, but it, and it's a generational thing. Stuart, I know you're doing a lot with the Edinburgh TV Festival to help that when it comes to training and education etc is that a surprise to you the these results i think i think it, it's very clear there are there's a lot of work to be done and i think it's interesting to see so at the festival last year uh, we particularly looked at the experience of uh, black executives notably at leadership level or, or you know the lack thereof um and we also kind of looked at diversity and inclusion uh, more more broadly as well. And I think even if you accept, and this is certainly could be debated, that there has been a degree of progress, what, what I see happening is that just changes the conversation and, and suddenly you have to talk about people's experience on set when you do have more diverse and inclusive sets, for example. You know, the conversation it just is never going to go away. You know, we're going to make sure of that, you know, people here and, and beyond will hopefully um uh, as well so it's kind of it's just what the sort of most relevant question is how, and it's how you kind of keep developing the you know the conversation and asking asking the right questions so hopefully everyone just keep you know can keep getting better how about you patricia i mean uh, when it comes to being a woman in the tv industry and your experience of rising up through the ranks have you found it a level playing field and what else do you think can be done to really sort of level up the uh, male and female split right now? Yes, I think now we're actually um, having a lot of companies who are full of men. I, I deal with a lot of technology providers and, and you know, it is primarily men, uh, male industry, who book, you know, um, online panel discussions with us and webinars and things like that and who, who ask, to have females on it. So now, you know, there is real pressure, you know, even with, uh, you know, we've had comments about some of our judging panels for our awards, you know, we, we have awards, we've had comments coming from people, you know, in the industry saying this is not diverse enough, it's not good enough. Um, and we've actually had one client quite recently, I won't name them, but they it was essentially them not signing up to the deal if we could not bring them a female to the panel discussion. So that's how important it was to them. Uh, they didn't sign up because we we couldn't bring the expert in that field who was a female. So I think we're at the stage now where it's going, and it needs to, just probably like the feminist movement and most movements, it needs to go almost the other way, if you see what I mean, where we may have situations where females may be put in situations where they might honestly be the best expert in the field, but 
you know, they will be given a chance to be on, on a panel discussion or something like that. And, and it's probably necessary because, after all, I'm going back to really that old and, you know, I've, I've listened to this comment on, on your podcast before, uh, Justin, like females, a lot of the time they don't always raise their hands as well uh, to participate in things because maybe I think they're not always quite as confident as men. One issue uh, is not probably the only issue and uh, there are some you know, other things that, go, that will change over time. I think I'm, I'm very confident that females will rise through the ranks, will get better at asking for things, asking for a pay rise and things like that. And I'm very confident that things will change, but it will take time. These things take time, uh, but and you need to push time sometimes. You, and uh, this is happening at the moment. Um, so, um, but in the meantime, yeah, I think there are still very unfair situations when it comes to pay, when it comes to promotions and and things like that. I, I think a lot of unfairness. It's also about responsibility, isn't it? Because I think you can see, you know, so a broadcaster or commissioner can say, you know, you're not getting a commission unless your this production is suitably sort of diverse and inclusive, which is great because, you know, that production should be. And if that means you doing more work to make that the case, then that's that's how it works. But the broadcaster or the commissioner also has a responsibility. And you know, from where I sit, you know, organ- helping to organise a festival, you know, there's a responsibility in terms of, you know, who we put on our platform. And it's kind of, I think, you know, everyone, everyone right through the sort of the, the chain has to has to accept that responsibility, I feel. I, I think I'd love to jump in there because I've actually heard, you know, uh, some of my, my analyst friends echoing um, a lot of what you say and what you've been saying. And it's almost like there's a, there's almost like a slightly unfair pressure of, kind of you guys to be honest um on on you to sort out panels that are diverse and yet a lot of the people who are um you know from the <laughs> almost from the i don't want to get into its trouble almost from the sponsor side who, who are not providing um a diverse representation it's on you to find i definitely had some analyst friends say something along the lines of I've been asked to do this and it's not my area. It seems they just want me because I am, you know, X group. Um, it gets people in, in, in the right places and you can talk about prominence and how that has effect on sort of general development and that's all positive. But at the same time, it, it can't be a nice feeling thinking that, that that's the reason you've been invited, not for your expertise. But. Being the token female, yeah. Yeah, but I think that's a very interesting point because, you know, I've, I've seen this you know firsthand if for example you are doing something that specifically is talking about diversity um and you know you are someone to be on there you kind of quite rightly people could push back and say you know i'm a i'm a producer i'm a journalist you know i'm don't don't kind of define me by by that ask me to do stuff more broadly and that's that's what absolutely you know and i think that's exactly right to to be saying that and i think that you know from from where i sit it's really important that everything we do feels feels like it looks you know a little bit more like the the world out there well i think it's it's everyone's responsibility hasn't it i think that's one of the things that's come through 
over the last year as well. I think that everybody now should be feeling more of a sense of responsibility to level up right across the industry, engender confidence in people that don't have as much confidence, uh, whether that be women or any of these other uh, groups that we're talking about that are underrepresented in the industry to uh, to give them a chance. And and hopefully we can start addressing some of these uh, issues that uh, that the survey points out. Justin, I do sense, uh, I don't know how everyone else feels about this, but there has been, in, in such a, you know, through such a difficult time, there has been a kind of, uh, you know, and people are competing with one another. That's the sort of nature of what we do. But there has been a lot of sort of cross-industry, cross-sector sort of cooperation, and people have been pulling together in a lot of instances. And when something bad happens you can see people react to it and you know when there's a sort of perceived sort of unkindness i think people are more willing to 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 push back and and to call people out Mm. i don't know that might just be my perception yeah no well i hope so there's there's a lot that we can go through here but i think generally i think there's a hashtag be kind that people are you know really asking each other to just have a little bit more thought about helping people out colleagues and as you said there's been a lot of collaboration over the industry over the past year and that's something that i really hope will uh, will carry on in the months ahead there has been you know within or whether it's certain you know shows or, or specifics there, there there has been in some instances a mindset of you know do whatever you need to do to get this done you know to get this thing made i don't care if it means you working you know 25 hours a day you know just just get it done all we care about is getting something made getting you know good numbers for it whatever and actually i think there's a realization that that's that isn't really you actually have to think about the process along the way and actually that that you know just being everyone being essentially a bit kinder to one another or you know allowing people a bit of headspace if they need it while also accepting that it is brutally competitive and everyone wants to be brilliant. You know, they're not, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Guys, we could talk for a long time about the uh, results from this survey. There's lots more to delve into as well. It's available to download under the survey section on telecast-podcast.com. So please uh, go there and, uh, and, and download to your heart's content. Thank you for chatting through that with me. And now it's time in the show for Patricia and Stuart to pick the very first story of the year as opposed to the week to celebrate our first birthday. That's the TV industry news item that's caught their eye over the past 365 days, I think it is. Stuart, what's your story of the year? My story of the year, and I'm afraid my, my probably my hero and getting the bin all at once, sorry if I'm, I'm messing around with the format here, is Clearly, the uh, the advent of a European Super League in terms of football. I've never, I can't remember a story. I mean, there's such a lot of ramifications for TV in terms of rights, in terms of going direct to consumer, in terms of streaming. Lots and lots of different angles there. But I just can't remember a story that has actually united, you know, all of the football tribes in terms of in terms of their opposition. I mean, I think Justin, it's a rare case of uh, maybe. Chelsea and Elite fan being able to actually agree on something for once. Yeah, well, it's ca- captured on a, a podcast as well, which is extraordinary. What's interesting from a TV perspective, as you say, is that you know Sky have come out very forcefully yesterday, say that they haven't been in discussions for this new European Super League. I think Amazon came out today, and obviously we're recording a couple of days before the show goes out 
have also started to distance themselves from it. Uh, Patricia, how about you? What's your story of the year? So I'm going to be very predictable with all of mine, Justine. I'm sorry. But um, the death of the Prince Philip, uh, Duke of Edinburgh, is my my story of the year. I know it's very recent, but I've got very short-term memory anyway, so that's one reason. And also because, obviously, just obviously from the monarchy point of view, um, but in terms of planes that the BBC received, which was interesting, uh, 110,000, I believe, uh, which is the highest number ever. And I do love a bit of pageantry, uh, no less than anyone else. But um, it was a bit crazy, wasn't it, the day of the, his death was announced that they, BBC One and BBC Two uh, just completely switched their whole programming for several hours. And uh, both channels, to me, was just very hard to understand, BBC One and BBC Two. And I think that was a big mistake. And And on top of that, from just the corporation's point of view, it, it just really felt like, uh, you know, like scaven- scavenging. <laughs> they were all ready with, obviously, all of that, which I don't blame them to be ready. I'm sure they have everything ready for for our queen. But um, it, it just didn't sit right at all with me from the point of view as well that, that they did that. It felt like a bit of royal protocol that had been drafted about 20 or 30 years ago and obviously nobody at the BBC is going to say can we take another look at this (laughs) exactly just that's how it felt to me it just yeah it it was wrong on on several levels that was just I think a wrong decision from the BBC to do this it feels to me that maybe the BBC kind of defaults to a a sort of you know BBC of old in, in in that sort of situation you know the nation's Sort of broadcaster and and I don't know it's kind of it was it was fascinating to kind of watch how how they dealt with it with that kind of coverage and then see the number of you know people who objected to that I, I wonder to what extent they were they were expecting that kind of pushback and and it's quite immediate now isn't it you can kind of see see that reaction on on social and such like it's, it's just fascinating to watch that play out People don't like to be kept from their bake-off, do they? That's yes. the uh, that's the other thing. Um, but the the actual viewing figures for the funeral were very impressive, weren't they? I think there was about 13, 14 million, which was uh, proof that you know the nation. And I think I don't know about the international figures, but I could certainly see a lot of uh, a lot of interest from the states, as you might imagine, when it comes to different networks covering it as well. And now it's time in the show where my guests get to nominate their hero of the year and who or what they're telling to get in the bin. Stuart, who's your hero of the year? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I think I may, may have done that already and it's one of the Nevilles. But I think in, in, in industry-wise, I think what John McVeigh and the group he was working with did in terms of getting government support for the industry during you know in the real heat of the crisis was was phenomenal had a real tangible effect and you know you just have to just take your hat off to to that that effort absolutely and how about you patricia i've got kate bingham for the vaccination rollout program just in <laughs> there's not much more to say about that i think you know it, it probably required a lot more work and organization than than it, it looks like especially when you compare with uh, the rest of Europe in particular. So, yes, that's yeah. been very positive. I think it's really cheered people up. So I think that's had a real big impact on everyone. And, you know, 
realistically on, on our day-to-day life now. We're starting to open up. So, yes, all good. And who or what are you telling to get in the bin? Another related, COVID-related, I'm putting my uh, my president in the bin, uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, being French. And I'm extremely disappointed how he has behaved, especially the last few weeks, because at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought he was actually a, a real leader in Europe. He He's the one who came up with the phrase, we're at war with the virus, which was used over here as well, and taking very quick measures, uh, you know, with the lockdown. But the last few months, I think, I don't understand what he's been, I don't understand what, what he's doing. I mean, he's done very, very stride, very, very soft lockdowns, which haven't worked. France now is in a very bad place with 30, 40,000 cases every day. Um, Everyone's able to meet indoors, mixing households, uh, everything you want to do pretty much in France you can do, uh, except that there's a curfew, which I think just doesn't work if you can do pretty much everything you want to do in a day. The big thing that I'm angry about is what he said about the Oxford AstraZeneca when he said it was quasi ineffective for the over 65, which wasn't true which already, you know, there are very high levels of hesitancy in France with, you know, with a vaccine for some reason, which I don't really understand there again. So it's damaged the trust in France and in Europe. I mean, Macron's got a lot of influence, right, in Europe. He really has made a lot of mistakes, I think. Uh, But, you know, the elections are next year. So surprise, surprise. And I think he has behaved a little bit, I'm afraid to say, and I've I've heard a, a, a British journalist called him, call him the educated Trump. And he has been behaving a little bit like Trump lately, fancying himself as as an epidemiologist and as the expert and doing his own what he thinks is the right thing to do, which is completely ridiculous. So Macron, Emmanuel, you're going in the bin. Sorry. And how about you, Stuart? Who or what are you telling to get in the bin? I've got a good French baddie. It's Charles Sobrage a.k.a. The Serpent, in the Netflix and BBC co-pro. I think he was the best villain on TV. Best, obviously, by that I mean the worst uh, villain on TV uh, for ages. And I thought that show was was brilliant because it was a strange mix of being able to kind of enjoy these amazing, watching these amazing bits of Thailand and Asia while then sort of feeling a bit guilty because at the same time there were some just genuinely horrific and chilling things going on but that's a that's a brilliant bit of tv but i think i don't think you could argue with putting him in the bin based on the evidence of that series absolutely there's a so there's a french villain and the french prime minister both going (laughs) no french president 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 should i say going don the bin thank you right okay so thank you very much indeed to patricia Stuart and jonathan thanks so much for joining me on the first birthday of telecast really appreciate you spending your all your time with us today. Good luck. We'll see you in Edinburgh, Stuart. We'll see you, Patricia, very soon in in Soho, hopefully. And same with you, Jonathan. See you soon, Justin. Bye. Bye. See you. Thank you for having me. Bye. So my next guest on this week's show really doesn't need any introduction. Welcome to the show, Mel B. How are you doing, Mel? Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm really good and really excited to have a real life 
Spice Girl on Telecast. Thanks so <laughs> much for coming on the show. How are you doing? You moved back to Leeds fairly recently, haven't you? Yeah, I did. It was all kind of a bit last minute. I came up back over to England for Spice Girls tour rehearsals and my kids were just like, Mummy, why don't we stay here? Because I'm my mum is one of seven, so I've got lots of aunties and uncles and cousins and nephews. And my kids were just pressuring me. They're like, we don't want to go back to America. We, we want to stay here. Then my 13-year-old found a school in Leeds, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, they're serious. So we've just ended up staying here. The kids love it. We're, like, in the countryside. There's sheep in our backyard. It's very peaceful and surrounded by a family, which is the most important thing. Well, it's, it's great to not only have you on the show, but also – a fellow native of Yorkshire. Um, has, have you found there you Leeds, go. Yeah, have you found Leeds has, uh, has changed much since uh, you left Leeds originally? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, it's definitely cleaned up its act. There's lots of like loads of brand new restaurants. It's kind of gone a little bit more cosmopolitan. We've got a great university here, so it's full of like aspiring artists and actresses, and you know, people that want to get into the doctor field. So it's kind of yeah, it's bumped its quality of life up a little more here. And obviously Channel 4 has opened up I know. fairly recently as well. So, yeah, uh, so there's, yeah, there's lots of opportunities here now, more yeah. so than, than than there was before. Absolutely. Well, well, we'll come on to talk a little bit about that later on. So putting aside the fact that you're a member of the best-selling female group of all time with over 90 million records sold worldwide as part of the Spice Girls, and, and obviously you've had... Uh, a number of solo hits as well. But Telecast is about TV and the business of TV. And you're also one of the best loved TV personalities and most in-demand talent show judges now. My ego is going out of crazy right now. (laughs) My ego is going crazy right now. So many compliments in one go. Well, it it is quite amazing. Let me me read this list of shows that that you've hosted and been involved in uh, in recent years. So, Dancing with the Stars, The Voice, The Voice Kids, The X Factor, America's Got Talent, Lip Sync Battle, The Masked Singer, and then Loose Women, Dance Your Ass Off, It's a Scary World. You've worked in video games as well. It really is a remarkable list, Mel. What, What do you most enjoy about working in TV? I just like the spontaneity of it all, especially when you film live shows. And, you know, a lot of these shows have a set format. But I, I'm just kind of allowed to do what I want. Obviously, I have to stick to the rules to a certain extent, but I just get to be me on TV and have fun and mentor people and give my opinion for what it's worth. And yeah, you get to glam up, you get to put your a nice little frock on, get your hair and makeup done. It's kind of glamorous, but also hard working because sometimes you're on set for like 10 hours at a time. But, you know, I just I, I find it very entertaining and very unpredictable. Yeah, it kind of it fulfills my every need, really. Can you remember your first ever TV appearance right back, maybe with Spice Girls or maybe even pre-Spice Girls? Can you can you remember when you were first on TV? I think one of the first couple of TVs we did was Top of the Pops. And I think we did a Scylla Black segment and something with Andy Peters, like we're way back in the early days. I'm talking like 25 years plus ago. Yeah, and back then it was just us five running amok all over town, all over the world. It's yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, as well as lots of memorable moments on those shows that I've just listed and uh, and obviously Spice Girls TV appearances, another memorable TV moment that you've 
had as uh, was running wild with Bear Grylls when <laughs> when you peed on his hand to treat a jellyfish sting. And I was oh, yeah. watching that the other day, and it's been viewed more than 16 million times on Discovery UK's YouTube channel there. Does oh, that stick gosh. out for you as the most most memorable moment for you? It was definitely one of them, and to think that 16 million people have watched it. Damn, I should have got a cut on the back end of that show. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, that was a really fun show because you don't quite know what you're getting into you, you just know that it's going to be a massive adventure and just stretch you beyond belief with all your fears involved I mean I was scared of heights and spiders and I had to abseil down a I think it was like a 60 foot something or other like cliff I had to live in like a little like sh- shrubbery thing with spiders everywhere well not live stay overnight so it was definitely yeah, it definitely pushed me to my max, but it was really, I mean, it was really kind of almost like a bit of a soul-searching thing because you get put into situations that you would never normally be put in, but yet you've agreed to do it, so you just have to go with it. So I guess it's not just a TV show, it's actually a life experience, isn't it, that sort of show? Oh, definitely, definitely. I remember one time we were, like, hacking our way through a bunch of shrubbery in this massive field, and I, I said to Bear, I said, who's that guy on the other side of the camera? He said, oh, he's um, SAS and he's also trained in if you get like a snake bite. So they had like paramedics on standby too. So you're really putting yourself in to quite obscure, dangerous kind of territory. But obviously you have the safety net of knowing that people are going to be there to look after you if need be. But I just wasn't aware until I actually asked that question, like, what are these people doing here? And it was like, oh, it's just for your safety in case anything goes wrong. Because if you get a snake bite, we have to airlift you out of here. I was like, wow, wow, (laughs) this is what I've signed up for. And you were like, oh, there's snakes? Yeah, yeah, literally. (laughs) It was recently announced that you're going to host the second series of The Fashion Hero. And the first season yeah. aired in over 160 territories worldwide. You know, just a, a little bit of background on The Fashion Hero was a TV series that's created to challenge the fashion industry's preconceived standards of beauty. And yeah. from hundreds of thousands of registered applicants, gets whittled down to finalists for the show, of different ethnicities, genders, shapes and sizes, and they all compete for the chance to become the fashion hero. What attracted you to the show, Matt? Um, Well, for me, the way it was presented to me was just so appealing because it's not just hosting the show. You you know, it gets whittled down to about 30, 32, 33 um, contestants from all over the world. And you get to be with them on this amazing journey of all these different challenges. And you really get to kind of be involved with the contestants rather than just judging them. It's nothing like that at all. I'm there. I'm their support girl. Apart from that, another thing was, for me, it's all inclusivity. So it doesn't matter what you look like, where you're from, what colour you are, what shape you are, what disability you have. You are, you you have a chance to shine and blossom and grow along with each episode and each challenge. And I get to be right there with them, helping them and, and supporting them. So that to me was a massive big. Like, yes, I definitely want to be involved kind of flag because there's not many shows like that. They all kind of stick to a certain look or a certain 
vibe of like must-haves, which in the real world, you know, we're all completely different. Nobody has that perfect body. Nobody has that perfect brain or perfect mentality about themselves and other people. So it's really about learning and growing together as one kind of happy family. And it's really important, isn't it, now? Because we've all grown up with these airbrushed images and these fashion magazines, both men and women, but, you know, predominantly women have had to, you know, really be faced with really sort of high high standards, un- unattainable standards. Yeah, of- it's completely unrealistic also. You know, I'm raising three girls. I've got a nine-year-old, a 14-year-old and a 22-year-old that are all girls that I've raised single-handedly by myself and it's been really important to, uh, for me as a mum to ensure their own inner confidence, to embrace their differences and to be comfortable in, the, in their own skin. And that's what this show is all about. Now, when you started off in the entertainment industry yourself as a talented black girl from Leeds, did you find it tough to get breakthroughs in the beginning, especially not living in London? I mean, I think there's challenges everywhere, but I think there's a particular challenge, especially if you're a woman and I'm mixed race. So my dad's black and my mum's white. So I've got the whole different racial sides going on. But I never let that kind of deter me from wanting to be in the entertainment industry. And I've, you know, I had a very supportive mum, very supportive dad that just had me look at myself and just embrace it and work on myself whether it be me not conforming to having my hair braided or straight and I wanted to wear my natural hair up curly with making sure that if I had an opinion I was tactile and that I would I would speak my own voice and make myself be heard so I got brought up with you know a lot of challenging rules but also a very supportive family so I got to be me and find out who, who I was. I mean, obviously along the way I made mistakes and this, that and the other, but I, I was always kind of comforted with the fact that, you know, my parents were very much encouraging for me just to be me. As long as I'm being authentic and true to myself and I have good morals, then, you know, I was happy all the way. The Spice Girls' message of female empowerment, uh, I think is, is probably needed as much now as it was 25 years ago when Wannabe was a hit. What advice do you have for young women setting out on a career in TV and entertainment right now? Oh, God, that's such a broad question because I always say I never like to give advice to strangers. I give advice to my kids and to myself, but everybody else, I mean, I don't know, it's each to their own. But in any profession that you want to enter, you know, it takes hard work and it takes persistence and dedication and you've got to work on your craft. But especially these days where it's very easy to get Instagram famous or, you know, it's just a little bit more accessible. And if you don't have the talent or the know-how to be able to back that up, you're going to be very disappointed in life. So just, I mean, just in general, I would make sure that you learn your craft and that you're confident in what you do and, and you should be forever opening to be able to learn new different exciting things along the way with whatever path you choose i just go back to the fashion hero a second and and you know this is this is all very much in the in the same vein obviously instagram facebook you know tiktok all these new social media channels have only relatively recently come to the fore and young kids i mean my kids are, are, are all obviously glued to their screens on on these channels as well 
I think, you know, that mm-hmm. something about the the fashion hero really addresses that, doesn't it? It's about, you know, being empowered to be yourself as opposed to trying to yeah. live up to the stereotypes of this unattainable facade. It's about being true to yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think it's come to a point now where people want more real. They want achievable. They, they want to look at an achievable look that isn't an unrealistic standard, you know. And I think the, the beauty industry has been um, it's been kind of really badly um, represented because it has been so airbrushed and it has been so perfectly fake. Now people want more, and they they realize that that's just not normal i mean if you just look around you you know you've got all different shapes sizes people with disabilities whether it be mentally or physically and people want to connect more with that real side of 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 people rather than just something that is just like a bit of a barbie doll fakeness do you get the impression that the next generation coming up now they're going to be a bit kinder than you know the experience that we had when we were growing up at teenage years I would hope so. Now, I mean, you have to be politically correct. I mean, what people would say to you in a job interview or even like a dance audition back in the day 25 years ago would be really harsh and it wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't pass these days. You you have to be more um careful with your words. You know, you've got the Me Too movement, you've got the Black Lives Matter, all these things are, are coming to fruition. So people have to be more careful, which hopefully will be embracing a kind of world where we're more aware of other people and their differences. Absolutely. This year, it's the 25th anniversary of the Spice Girls. I mentioned Wannabe being in the charts and and your tour plans have presumably been put on ice. Are there any Spice Girl TV projects in the pipeline you can talk about? Yeah, this year's our 25th anniversary. So there's been lots of discussions between us girls about how we want to celebrate it and how we want to embrace the fans and what they would like to see or hear so we've definitely got a few things in the in the pipeline but obviously with covid a lot of things got put on the back burner or should I say got put on hold so now you know UK has opened up a little bit more we're constantly in discussions with each other we have like a funny whatsapp group that we're always messaging ideas and things like that so yeah there's things in in the pipeline but i don't want to be the one to let the cat out the bag just yet right okay speaking personally about tv what are you watching right now are you sort of a netflix junkie when you're at home are you just uh, are you just streaming you know 24 hours a day or what do you enjoy watching on tv yourself I mean, I watch a variety of things. And the last really good TV show I watched was um, Your Honour, which Mm -hmm. just had me enthralled. And then I watch silly things like Say Yes to the Dress, which is like my guilty pleasure. Or I watch Intervention. So it's like real life people with real life situations and they end up getting help. Some do, some don't, some fall by the wayside. But I I like watching things that are actually real, like, I don't know, One Born Every Minute or Inside the Ambulance. I'm not really much of a Netflix junkie per se. I just like to just catch things on on a whim. I I hate it when you have to wait another week for the show or you can binge watch like eight episodes because I would stay up all night. So I've kind of deterred myself away from that. That's probably a a good move. You're you're right. There's, I mean, some shows, the way that they change their rights or they negotiate their rights, yeah, you just, it's back to the old school like line of duty right now you can only watch it once a week oh if yeah you're, if you're keeping up to it it's probably everyone's you know, going nuts over that show 
Yeah. Have you watched it? I, I haven't watched it myself, actually. I'm kind of like... I haven't. No, no. I no. haven't yet. I mean, yeah. I'm a bit of a late starter. I only just, I think it was like two years ago, started watching Breaking Bad. I mean, I don't really go with the fads. I think, oh, God, well, what's all that about? Yeah. And that's all everybody talks about, so I kind of avoid that. <laughs> right, so Watch you're on a later. bit of a Brian Cranston kind of trip at the moment with uh, Your Honour as well, right? <laughs> yeah, he's great. Oh, my gosh, that show's so good. So, so, so good. Mel, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with me today. Really appreciate it. The Fashion Hero starts filming this summer, presumably once COVID restrictions allow, in South Africa's Sun City Resort. That's going to be amazing. I know, yeah, I cannot wait. I've actually been to this place before, like 20 years ago, when we got invited to go and have dinner at Nelson Mandela's house. And that's actually where we stayed. So it'd be nice to go back there and reminisce a little bit and work. Yeah. Can't wait. Mel, I could talk, you know, for hours. There's so many things that I'd love to talk about, but thanks for being so generous with your time. Best of luck with everything. Best of luck with the fashion hero. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we've reached the end of another week's show and the end of our first year. Thanks for listening and thanks for sticking with us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the show and share it with friends and colleagues. And a quick reminder to sign up for our free newsletter called Telecast Plus. It's packed with all the interesting TV industry stories of the week you may have missed, exclusive insight and opinion, including The Secret Producer, our intrepid, anonymous exec reporting from the front line of TV production. It's completely free. Just visit our website to sign up at telecast-podcast.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers and recorded in London. Until next Thursday, as always, stay safe.